Chapter Four of Behind a Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Behind a Mask, or A Woman's Power, by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter Four, A Discovery. For several days, Coventry was confined to his room, much against his will, though every one did their best to lighten his irksome captivity. His mother petted him, Bella sang, Lucia read, Edward was devoted, and all the household, with one exception, were eager to serve the young master. Jean Muir never came near him, and Jean Muir alone seemed to possess the power of amusing him. He soon tired of the others, wanted something new, recalled the piquant character of the girl, and took a fancy into his head that she would lighten his ennui. After some hesitation he carelessly spoke of her to Bella, but nothing came of it, for Bella only said Jean was well and very busy doing something lovely to surprise Mamma with. Edward complained that he never saw her, and Lucia ignored her existence altogether. The only intelligence the invalid received was from the gossip of two housemaids over their work in the next room. From them he learned that the governess had been scolded by Miss Beaufort for going to Mr. Coventry's room, that she had taken it very sweetly, and kept herself carefully out of the way of both young gentlemen, though it was plain to see that Mr. Ned was dying for her. Mr. Gerald amused himself by thinking over this gossip, and quite annoyed his sister by his absence of mind. "'Gerald, do you know Ned's commission has come?' "'Very interesting. Read on, Bella.' "'You stupid boy! You don't know a word I say!' And she put down the book to repeat her news. "'I'm glad of it. Now we must get him off as soon as possible. That is, I suppose he will want to be off as soon as possible.' And Coventry woke up from his reverie. "'You needn't check yourself. I know all about it. I think Ned was very foolish, and that Miss Muir has behaved beautifully. It's quite impossible, of course. But I wish it wasn't. I do so like to watch lovers. You and Lucia are so cold, you are not a bit interesting. You'll do me a favour if you'll stop all that nonsense about Lucia and me. We are not lovers, and never shall be, I fancy. At all events, I'm tired of the thing, and wish you and Mamma would let it drop, for the present at least. Oh, Gerald, you know Mamma has set her heart upon it, that Papa desired it. And poor Lucia loves you so much. How can you speak of dropping what will make us all so happy?" "'It won't make me happy. And I take the liberty of thinking that this is of some importance. I'm not bound in any way, and don't intend to be till I am ready. Now we'll talk about Ned." Much grieved and surprised, Bella obeyed, and devoted herself to Edward, who very wisely submitted to his fate and prepared to leave home for some months. For a week the house was in a state of excitement about his departure, and every one but Jean was busied for him. She was scarcely seen. Every morning she gave Bella her lessons, every afternoon drove out with Mrs. Coventry, and nearly every evening went up to the hall to read to Sir John, who found his wish granted without exactly knowing how it had been done. The day Edward left, he came down from bidding his mother good-bye, looking very pale, for he had lingered in his sister's little room with Miss Muir as long as he dared. "'Good-bye, dear. Be kind to Jean,' 
he whispered as he kissed his sister. "'I will, I will,' returned Bella with tearful eyes. "'Take care of mamma, and remember Lucia,' he said again, as he touched his cousin's beautiful cheek. "'Fear nothing. I will keep them apart,' she whispered back, and Coventry heard it. Edward offered his hand to his brother, saying significantly as he looked him in the eye, "'I trust you, Gerald.' "'You may, Ned.' Then he went, and Coventry tired himself with wondering what Lucia meant. A few days later he understood. "'Now Ned is gone, little Muir will appear, I fancy,' he said to himself. But little Muir did not appear, and seemed to shun him more carefully than she had done her lover. If he went to the drawing-room in the evening hoping for music, Lucia alone was there. If he tapped at Bella's door, there was always a pause before she opened it, and no sign of Jean appeared, though her voice had been audible when he knocked. If he went to the library, a hasty rustle and the sound of flying feet betrayed that the room was deserted at his approach. In the garden Miss Muir never failed to avoid him, and if by chance they met in hall or breakfast-room, she passed him with downcast eyes and the briefest, coldest greeting. All this annoyed him intensely, and the more she eluded him, the more he desired to see her. From a spirit of opposition, he said, nothing more. It fretted and yet it entertained him, and he found a lazy sort of pleasure in thwarting the girl's little manoeuvres. His patience gave out at last, and he resolved to know what was the meaning of this peculiar conduct. Having locked and taken away the key of one door in the library, he waited till Miss Muir went in to get a book for his uncle. He had heard her speak to Bella of it, knew that she believed him with his mother, and smiled to himself as he stole after her. She was standing in a chair, reaching up, and he had time to see a slender waist, a pretty foot, before he spoke. "'Can I help you, Miss Muir?' She started, dropped several books, and turned scarlet, as she said hurriedly, "'Thank you, no. I can get the steps. My long arm will be less trouble. I've got but one, and that is tired of being idle, so it is very much at your service. What will you have?' "'I—you <laughs> startled me, so I've forgotten.' And Jean laughed nervously, as she looked about her as if planning to escape. "'I beg your pardon. Wait till you remember.' and let me thank you for the enchanted sleep you gave me ten days ago. I have had no chance yet. You've shunned me so pertinaciously. Indeed, I try not to be rude, but—she checked herself, and turned her face away, adding with an accent of pain in her voice, "'It is not my fault, Mr. Coventry. I only obey orders.' "'Whose orders?' he demanded, still standing so that she could not escape. "'Don't ask.' It is one who has a right to command where you are concerned. Be sure that it is kindly meant, though it may seem folly to us. Nay, don't be angry. Laugh at it as I do, and let me run away, please." She turned, and looked down at him with tears in her eyes, a smile on her lips, and an expression half sad, half arch, which was altogether charming. The frown passed from his face, but he still looked grave and said decidedly, no one has a right to command in this house but my mother or myself. Was it she who bade you avoid me as if I was a madman or a pest?" 
I don't ask. I promise not to tell, and you would not have me break my word, I know." And still smiling, she regarded him with a look of merry malice, which made any other reply unnecessary. It was Lucia, he thought, and disliked his cousin intensely just then. Miss Muir moved as if to step down. He detained her, saying earnestly, yet with a smile, "'Do you consider me the master here?' "'Yes.' And to the word she gave a sweet, submissive intonation, which made it expressive of the respect, regard, and confidence which men find pleasantest when women feel and show it. Unconsciously his face softened, and he looked up at her with a different glance from any he had ever given her before. "'Well, then, will you consent to obey me if I am not tyrannical or unreasonable in my demands?' "'I'll try.' "'Good. Now, frankly, I want to say that all this sort of thing is very disagreeable to me. It annoys me to be a restraint upon any one's liberty or comfort, and I beg you will come and go as freely as you like, and not mind Lucia's absurdities. She means well, but hasn't a particle of penetration or tact. Will you promise this?" No. Why not? It is better as it is, perhaps. But you called it folly just now. Yes, it seems so. And yet—" She paused, looking both confused and distressed. Coventry lost patience and said hastily, "'You women are such enigmas I never expect to understand you. Well, I've done my best to make you comfortable. But if you prefer to lead this sort of life, I beg you will do so.' "'I don't prefer it. It is hateful to me. I like to be myself, to have my liberty, and the confidence of those about me. But I cannot think it kind to disturb the peace of any one, and so I try to obey. I've promised Bella to remain, but I will go rather than have another scene with Miss Beaufort, or with you." Miss Muir had burst out impetuously, and stood there with a sudden fire in her eyes, sudden warmth and spirit in her face and voice that amazed Coventry. She was angry, hurt, and haughty, and the change only made her more attractive for not a trace of her former meek self remained. Coventry was electrified, and still more surprised when she added imperiously, with a gesture as if to put him aside, "'Hand me that book and move away. I wish to go.' He obeyed, even offered his hand, but she refused it, stepped down lightly, and went to the door. There she turned, and with the same indignant voice, the same kindling eyes and glowing cheeks, she said rapidly, "'I know I have no right to speak in this way. I restrain myself as long as I can, but when I can bear no more, my true self breaks loose, and I defy everything. I am tired of being a cold, calm machine. It is impossible with an ardent nature like mine, and I shall try no longer. I cannot help it if people love me. I don't want their love. I only ask to be left in peace. And why I am so tormented I cannot see.' of neither beauty, money, nor rank. Yet every foolish boy mistakes my frank interest for something warmer, and makes me miserable. It is my misfortune. Think of me what you will, but beware of me in time, for against my will I may do you harm." Almost fiercely she had spoken, and with a warning gesture she hurried from the room, leaving the young man feeling as if a sudden thunder-gust had swept through the house. For several minutes he sat in the chair she left, thinking deeply. Suddenly he rose, 
went to his sister, and said in his usual tone of indolent good-nature, "'Bella, didn't I hear Ned ask you to be kind to Miss Muir?' "'Yes, and I try to be, but she is so odd lately.' "'Odd? How do you mean?' "'Why, she is either as calm and cold as a statue, or restless and queer. She cries at night, I know, and sighs sadly when she thinks I don't hear. Something is the matter.' "'She frets for Ned, perhaps,' began Coventry. "'Oh, dear, no! It's a great relief to her that he is gone. I am afraid that she likes some one very much, and some one don't like her. Can it be Mr. Sidney?' "'She called him a titled fool once, but perhaps that didn't mean anything. Did you ever ask her about him?' said Coventry, feeling rather ashamed of his curiosity yet unable to resist the temptation of questioning unsuspecting Bella. "'Yes, but she only looked at me in her tragical way, and said so pitifully, "'My little friend, I hope you'll never have to pass through the scenes I've passed through, but keep your peace unbroken all your life.' After that I dared say no more. I'm very fond of her. I want to make her happy, but I don't know how. Can you propose anything?' I was going to propose that you make her come among us more, now Ned is gone. It must be dull for her, moping about alone. I'm sure it is for me. She's an entertaining little person, and I enjoy her music very much. It's good for Mamma to have gay evenings, so you bestir yourself, and see what you can do for the general good of the family." That's all very charming, and I've proposed it more than once, but Lucia spoils all my plans. She is afraid you'll follow Ned's example, and that is so silly." "'Lucia is a—no, I won't say a fool, because she has sense enough when she chooses. But I wish you'd just settle things with Mamma, and then Lucia can do nothing but submit,' said Gerald angrily. "'I'll try. But she goes up to read to Uncle, you know. And since he has had the gout, she stays later, so I see little of her in the evening. There she goes now. I think she will captivate the old one as well as the young one. She is so devoted." Coventry looked after her slender black figure, just vanishing through the great gate, and an uncomfortable fancy took possession of him, born of Bella's careless words. He sauntered away, and after eluding his cousin, who seemed looking for him, he turned toward the hall, saying to himself, "'I will see what is going on up here. Such things have happened. Uncle is the simplest soul alive, and if the girl is ambitious, she can do what she will with him." Here a servant came running after him and gave him a letter, which he thrust into his pocket without examining it. When he reached the hall, he went quietly to his uncle's study. The door was ajar, and looking in, he saw a scene of tranquil comfort, very pleasant to watch. Sir John leaned in his easy-chair with one foot on a cushion. He was dressed with his usual care, and in spite of the gout, looked like a handsome, well-preserved old gentleman. He was smiling as he listened, and his eyes rested complacently on Jean Muir, who sat near him reading in her musical voice, while the sunshine glittered on her hair and the soft rose of her cheek. She read well, yet Coventry thought her heart was not in her task, for once when she paused, while Sir John spoke, her eyes had an absent expression and she leaned her head upon her hand with an air of patient weariness. "'Poor girl! I did her great injustice. She has no thought of captivating the old man, but amuses him from simple kindness. She is tired, 
I'll put an end to her task." And Coventry entered without knocking. Sir John received him with an air of polite resignation, Miss Muir with a perfectly expressionless face. "'Mother's love! And how are you to-day, sir?' "'Comfortable, but dull. So I want you to bring the girls over this evening to amuse the old gentleman. Mrs. King has got out the antique costumes and trumpery, as I promised Bella she should have them, and to-night we are to have a merry-making, as we used to do when Ned was here." "'Very well, sir, I'll bring them. We've all been out of sorts since the lad left, and a little jollity will do us good. Are you going back, Miss Muir?' asked Coventry. "'No, I shall keep her to give me my tea and get things ready. Don't read any more, my dear but go and amuse yourself with the pictures, or whatever you like," said Sir John, and like a dutiful daughter she obeyed, as if glad to get away. "'That's a very charming girl, Gerald,' began Sir John, as she left the room. "'I'm much interested in her, both on her own account and on her mother's.' "'Her mother's? What do you know of her mother?' asked Coventry, much surprised. Her mother was Lady Grace Howard, who ran away with a poor Scotch minister twenty years ago. The family cast her off, and she lived and died so obscurely that very little is known of her, except that she left an orphan girl at some small French pension. This is the girl, and a fine girl, too. I'm surprised that you did not know this." "'So am I. But it is like her not to tell. She is a strange, proud creature. Lady Howard's daughter! Upon my word, that is a discovery!" And Coventry felt his interest in his sister's governess much increased by this fact, for, like all well-born Englishmen, he valued rank and gentle blood even more than he cared to own. She has had a hard life of it, this poor little girl, but she has a brave spirit, and will make her way anywhere," said Sir John admiringly. Did Ned know this? asked Gerald suddenly. "'No, she only told me yesterday. I was looking in the peerage, and chanced to speak of the Howards. She forgot herself, and called Lady Grace her mother. Then I got the whole story, for the lonely little thing was glad to make a confidant of some one. That accounts for her rejection of Sidney and Ned. She knows she is their equal, and will not snatch at the rank which is hers by right. No, she is not mercenary, or ambitious.' "'What do you say?' asked Sir John, for Coventry had spoken more to himself than to his uncle. "'I wonder if Lady Sidney was aware of this,' was all Gerald's answer. "'No, Jean said she did not wish to be pitied, and so told nothing to the mother. I think the son knew, but that was a delicate point, and I asked no questions. I shall write to him as soon as I discover his address. We have been so intimate I can venture to make a few inquiries about Miss Muir, and prove the truth of her story." "'Do you mean to say that you doubt it?' demanded Sir John angrily. "'I beg your pardon, uncle, but I must confess I have an instinctive distrust of that young person. It is unjust, I dare say, yet I cannot banish it. Don't annoy me by expressing it, if you please. I have some penetration and experience, and I respect and pity Miss Muir heartily. This dislike of yours may be the cause of a late melancholy, hey, Gerald?" And John looked suspiciously at his nephew. Anxious to avert the rising storm, Coventry said hastily as he turned away, "'I've neither time nor inclination to discuss the matter now, sir, but will be careful not to offend again. 
I'll take your message to Bella. So good-bye for an hour, uncle." And Coventry went his way through the park, thinking within himself, the dear old gentleman is getting fascinated like poor Ned. How the deuce does the girl do it? Lady Howard's daughter, yet never told us. I don't understand that. End of chapter 4